Welcome to Yet Even Now on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. The following teachings through the book of Joel came out of preparation for the 2020 Yet Even Now conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus. We are overjoyed to be able to share these teachings prepared for this conference recorded in the fall of 2020. Study along with us through the book of Joel using the Yet Even Now Companion Guide found at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com. We pray these teachings will bless you as you hear from the Lord through the prophet Joel. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash donate. Welcome to uh, session two of the prophetic book of Joel. I will cover chapter one, verses four through 20. So if you can find that in your Bible, Joel chapter one, verses four through 20. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, well like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of man. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? 
The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To thee, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for thee, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. As we observe the book of Joel together, we'll share who Joel is speaking to, which are the elders, priests, ministers, all inhabitants of the land, their sons, and their sons tell their sons in the next generation. Since this book addresses the inhabitants of the land, it speaks to us today too. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it reminds us why we should study Old Testament passages. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 12, it says, Now these things happen to them as an example, and to them here is the Old Testament saints. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry. And idolatry is one of the main sins that Israel has dealt with throughout its history. But what we want to focus on in reading this passage is that this, the book of Joel, has been written for us to gain instruction, for us to learn uh, from their example. And don't think that just because you're standing that you stand. Uh, always focus on your relationship with the Lord. Know that you will be tempted, but God is faithful and he won't tempt you above that which you are able. All right. So as we, as we look at and observe the book of Joel together, uh, sin, the word sin is not mentioned in Joel, except for drunkenness. There were certain things the prophets spoke in the past that were standards. Number one, worship one God. Number two, love God with all your heart. And number three, fear and obey God. In the Pentateuch, which is the first five uh, books of the law, Moses shared the blessings for Israel's obedience and the cursing in Deuteronomy 28. These curses involve the setting that we are dealing with in Joel. So we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. In that passage, uh, in that chapter of um, Deuteronomy, we're going to jump around a little bit. So we'll read verses 15, 16, 20. Go to 38 through 40, read 42, and then jump down to 45 through 47. So Deuteronomy 28, 15 says, But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curses shall be 
Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke, and all you undertake. Until you are destroyed, and until you perish quickly, on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. Now we're going to jump to verse 38 through 40. And that reads, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little. For the locust shall consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. For the worm will devour that. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. And now we're jumping to verse 42, and it says, The cricket will possess all the trees in the produce of the ground. Then verses 45 through 47 reads as follows, So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overcome you until you are destroyed. Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. And they shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness in your heart for the abundance of all things. So at the reading of this passage, what we learn in the book of Deuteronomy is uh, God warns them that if they obey, then these blessings will occur. But if a if they disobey, these curses will occur. And the curses that we are dealing with uh, in the book of Joel is the uh, plague of locusts. The plague of locusts. You will hear this quoted by several of us in these audios. But I really love the New American Standard version of Second Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. Most of the passages that I will read to you is from the New American Standard Version, unless I say otherwise. Second Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 read as follows. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And what I would like to share with you uh, today is that as women of God, uh, the scripture is profitable for you. It uh, will teach you. It will correct you. Uh, it will train you in righteousness so that you are equipped to do the work that you need to do for the kingdom of God. And this is why it's so important to study both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, what is God saying to us today? How will we react? How will you react as you study uh, the book of Joel? You can be an optimist. You can be a pessimist, pessimist or an alarmist or a scoffer. The optimist uh, realizes that there is a crisis and it's going to last a while, so be brave. A uh, pessimist is, is sobbing. It's going to get worse and there is no escape. We're done for. An alarmist will see the enemy behind every tree and just worry about everything. And the scoffer, he will question the news reports and shrug his shoulders saying, what difference does it make anyway? Well, Joel is a realist who, who looks at life from the standpoint of the word of God. He addresses uh, six groups of people 
with four admonitions. And those admonitions are here, wake up, mourn, and call a fast. I have broken these down into instructions. Now, in our own times that we're living in right now, the nations of the world are experiencing severe droughts and famines, uh, frightening epidemics. We're in COVID-19 now, unexpected earthquakes, devastating floods, and other natural disasters, all of which have greatly affected national and global economies. Yet, very few people are asking, what is God saying to us? And we as the church, we have to wake up and realize and ask this question, what is he saying to us? This is what we want to ask ourselves today. How is the book of Joel applicable to me? Now, the setting of Joel uh, uh, switches from his time to the future. In chapter one, we are looking at the outcome of literal a literal locust plague. How do we know that it is a literal locust plague that is going on? Let's let's go back to uh, the book of Joel. And in verse four, it says, "What the gnawing locust has left, uh, current uh, present tense, the swarming locust has eaten." And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. So they had literally experienced a uh, locust plague that was destroying uh, the land. Now, uh, this section that I'm dealing with today uh, is in Joel's time, but it also talks about uh, an immediate day of the Lord. But he uses it to tell them what will happen in the future also. Uh, So the day of the Lord can be um, futuristic. Joel takes it personally. He says, my land, my vine, my fig tree. Like Daniel, he includes himself in the effects of sin. Now, if you want to read about Daniel and how he included himself in his prayer and the sin of the people, you can. It's in Daniel chapter 9. And note what he says. He says, we have sinned. But the questions that we want to ask ourselves is, what will happen to the people? Who are the people? What will happen to the animals? What's going to happen to the land, the nations? And who caused it? Well, the first question that I'm going to address is who caused it? And the who and what is God? If you look at the passages in uh, Joel 1.15 and Joel uh, 2.25, let's go there. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So who is bringing this destruction? The Almighty is. Now, when you go to Joel 2.25, it reads as follows. Then I will make up to you and that I here is God for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. So here we have Jesus saying, I sent uh, this army on you. Now, What is so good about scripture is that you don't want to just look at one scripture and not add others 
to it so that you can understand better. So what I'm going to read is Isaiah 45 verses five through seven, and I'm reading in the ESV version. It reads as follows. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, when I read that passage, you can't help but hear what God is saying. I am Lord. I'm Adonai. I'm master. And he says it three times. But note, what we want to point out is that he makes well-being or he can create calamity. And that is coming from God uh, himself. Now, uh, we want to read uh, Job 1, 4. And in that um, uh, part of the passage, uh, again, it tells us, a description of the locusts, and they're described as gnawing, swarming, and creeping. Now, when you look at the word gnaw, it means to bite or to nibble uh, something persistently and to cause uh, persistent and wearing distress uh, or anxiety. 40 million locusts can eat the same amount of food in one day as about 35,000 people 20 camels, and six elephants. Now, that's a fact. Now, when you look at the word swarm, uh, it's large, it's dense group of insects, especially flying ones who move in or form a swarm and they move in large numbers. There can be at least 40 to 80 million in a swarm. When we look at the word creep, uh, we, come, we understand uh, the word slow movement especially at a steady but almost imperceptible pace, to move slowly and carefully in order to avoid being heard or noticed. So uh, the best biblical example, which we'll go and read, is in Exodus 10, verses 4 through uh, 6. But when we look at these words that I just gave a definition of, and we look at the word uh, um, locust and how God brought them in, and you look at the word gnaw, these locusts, they are biting persistently and they're wearing down something. They're in large numbers, uh, which is described as a swarm and it's a dense group of insects and they're flying, they're moving in large numbers and they're destroying as they move, but they're creeping in their movement. And so that means it's a slow movement. It's a steady movement. And that movement is slowly and carefully destroying everything that it comes across. Now, when I think about this destruction of the uh, locust, I think, and I think about the wrath of God, I think about a, uh, and this is the best way I can describe, describe the wrath of God. It is like a boiling pot. And when you uh, turn the flame on the pot of water, you have um, light bubbles on the bottom and a little bit of steam uh, where you can see vapors in the air. But as that 
boiling increases, the water may overflow. You see bigger bubbles and it will hit the fire and cause more flames and uh, it gets stronger and stronger. And that's the best way that I can des describe the wrath of God uh, and what we're dealing with in our time. The reason we uh, don't see total destruction is because of the new mercies uh, that he pours upon us um, every day, every day. So let's let's look at Exodus and see uh, the effect of locusts and what they did uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter ten, and this deals with the uh, ten plagues that was placed over the Egyptians because they would not let Israel go. So verse ten four b says, "I will bring locusts into your territory." And they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one shall be able to see the land. They shall also eat the rest of what has escaped. What is left to you from the hail and they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled in the houses of all your servants in the houses of all the Egyptians. Something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. So this lets us know that the locusts just covered every area of uh, Egypt, even into the houses, bugs everywhere. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought uh, the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt, settled in the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again for they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. So this, this swarm of locusts was so, um, um, the land was covered so, so with these locusts that it was dark. You couldn't even see. They ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on a tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Now, you may ask, is Joel describing the different kinds of locusts or stages? I think he's doing both. Uh, we just described what locusts can do as far as the gnawing, the swarm, uh, and the creeping. But when you think of what they do in stages, locusts will lay eggs in an egg pod, primarily in sandy soils at a depth of 10 to 15 centimeters uh, below the surface. One female locust, locust can lay 95 to 158 eggs at intervals of 6 to 11 days. Up to 1,000 egg pods have been found in one square meter from egg to nymph, which is a hopper, to five molten stages called instars. After the fifth instar, the locust wings are fully developed and they're called fledglings. They cannot fly yet. Their bodies take approximately seven days to harden and become capable of flight. During this early stage of adult life, 
The locusts must continually feed on vegetation in order to store up the energy necessary for reproduction and flying. When they come, they do not eat, but simply bury their eggs in the ground. Following uh, the hatch some weeks later, the developing insects are ferocious. They devour everything in their path. So this is what we are dealing with. And this happened, if you want to Google it, in East Africa in 2019. So it's, it's worth the time to go and Google that and see uh, the damage or see what a swarm of locusts looks like. Now, we know God as the creator. We can't fathom uh, his wrath and his anger. But you have to understand that the same God that created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same God that is bringing uh, destruction. He is sovereign. He is in control. He will judge sin and he will punish sin. So let's, let's, let's return to uh, Joel, Joel 1. I need to <laughs> hold my place. Joel 1. Got to find it again. All right. Joel 1, um, verses 5 through 7. We want to read uh, that again because that's the uh, first instruction. He says, awake. Who is he speaking to? Well, 5 says, drunkards. What does he tell them to do? Weep and wail. He addresses them again. All you wine drinkers. Why? On account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth, so they no longer have wine. Verse 6, for a nation has invaded my land. There's a war going on, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So now Joel is using various metaphors to describe these uh, swarm of uh, locusts, and he's describing them like a lion or a lioness. He says, it has made my vine a waste in my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So what these locusts have done is thoroughly <laughs> torn apart a, a branch, a vine, uh, till you no longer see brown or green. You see white. He uses the word uh, invaded. And when you look at the word invade, it means to infringe or encroach or violate or to occupy, to penetrate, to uh, assault uh, in, a, in a harmful, uh, injurious way. And when he uses uh, the description of a lion or a lioness, we, we know that the lioness is the one that hunts the food. Um, and, and, and is the one that is most active. Now, the male, they engage in mortal combat. And I want to use these words, the, in, the, the invasion, uh, the lion and lioness, uh, the description of invasion, which means to intrude, infringe, encroach, violate, occupy, penetrate in a harmful way to compare what sin can do in your life. Sin. I will describe it like the locust is gnawing, swarming. Uh, it can be uh, like a small, small locust, but that small locust, when we described uh, the locust from the egg to its adult stage, 
uh, become small to large. Sin creeps uh, in your life. And even though Joel does not point out sin, we know from the writings of other prophets in the history of Israel, they were idol worshipers. They went to enemy nations for help instead of God. They were full of pride, disobedient, and more. There is, uh, there is a good description used uh, from the story of uh, Cain and Abel. One sacrifice was better than the other. Uh, God told Cain that sin is crouching at your door. If you read Genesis 4, 7, he says, sin crouches at your door. What is he saying? Cain, you need to put your sin in check. Uh, sin unchecked leads to wrong action. Cain didn't listen, so he murdered his brother um, Abel. What does the word sin mean in the Bible? How does sin affect our lives? Well, we get the word sin. We get the English word sin from two main Hebrew words. Uh, the definition of the word uh, chata, C-H-A-T-T-A-T-H, is first used in uh, Genesis 4-7. That's why we, we brought that up. Sin is crouching at your door. That means um, an offense. The second word, C-H-A-T-A, which appears in Genesis 39 and 9, means to miss. Sin is to miss the way. Sin is to miss the goal or the path of walking right. Now, the New Testament tells us that uh, the original language used for the word sin is harmatia. Uh, it, it means an act of committing an offense or a transgression. The second word is harmateno. Uh, that means missing the mark, to make an error or wonder from the path of unrighteousness. Sin is an offense against God, either through neglect or through conscious intent. Hence the word transgression. You know it's wrong and you transgress uh, anyway. So note... Um, Sin stems from within. It begins in the heart. Uh, sin causes distress. It can cause death. It can cause darkness. The flow of sin comes from the heart. It comes from our thoughts. It proceeds out of our mouth into action, just like the locusts, the gnawing, the swarming, and the creeping. If you read Matthew twelve thirty four, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Also, uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. So you want to protect uh, your heart and your mind, your thinking uh, process. So uh, what can you do about sin? Well, 1 John, 1 John 1 uh, verses 8 and 9 tell us that we need to confess our sins. And that means to verbally speak out the sin that you are are dealing with, and he is faithful and he's just to forgive. I'm going to read that for you. First John 1, uh, verses 8 and 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful uh, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all you have to do is confess, and uh, it, uh, the Word of God says he is faithful, and he's just, and he will cleanse us from all sin. And you have to remember, there is no temptation that can overtake it, take you that is common to man, but God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. 
and he will not let you be tempted uh, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So um, transgressing, walking in sin, that is different from a temptation. A temptation, we're tempted by our own lust. We're drawn away by our own lust. But that temptation can lead to sin. But as we've read in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, if we confess them, those sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive. You don't want to hide your sin. Proverbs 28 and 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. So you want to prosper in life. You want to confess that sin and you want to forsake it. And when you confess and you forsake that sin, you obtain mercy from God. He, he tells us that our sins are as far as the East is from the West when we confess our sins uh, to him. Uh, Psalms 103 verses 11 and 12 say, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And this is willing transgressions. This is sin that we know about. He removes those from us. Now, if you have time after uh, this um, uh, audio, go back and read um, Psalms 51. It's a wonderful Psalm to read uh, when you're, you're, you're dealing uh, with sin. Okay, so we want to, as individuals, uh, fulfill what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us. It says that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Uh, sin can be uh, anger. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it, the weight can be anger. The weight can be worries and cares. Uh, a weight can be a concern that we haven't given over to the Lord. We haven't uh, trusted him with all our heart. Sin uh, clings to us if we allow it. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us as we read on, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? We're going to look to Jesus because he is the founder. He is the perfecter of our faith. Uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? Because the cross is what delivers us from our sin. The cross is what uh, allows us to be forgiven. The cross uh, helps us to not, not walk in shame, but walk in the boldness of who we are in Jesus Christ. And it gives us the knowledge to know that we are seated at the right hand of God the Father along with Jesus Christ. Now that's Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses one through two. And also you can go uh, to Ephesians two, uh, where you, you can read that when Jesus Christ ascended, we also ascended and we are sitting down spiritually at the right hand of God, the father. So what do we need to do to avoid sin in our life? Well, James 4, 7 tells, tells us to submit to God, come under God, resist the devil and he will flee. So the locust reveals the outside effects of sin. There's an internal thing that can happen if you allow sin to stay in your life, but there is outside 
things that can happen in the book of Joel as a result of their sin. Our sin can affect generations of people. And that's why you want to uh, relieve yourself of any uh, sin in your life. When we are faced with our sin, we don't want to be like uh, the person in, in James 1. He says, you look in a mirror, uh, you see the sin, and then you look away. You don't want to continue uh, in your sin. Go back and read that passage. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you in James 1, uh, verses 22 through 25, using the Good News uh, translation. It says, do not deceive yourselves by just listening to his word. So we can listen to the word, but we cannot allow the word to affect us, okay? But you want it, you want the word of God to affect you. It says, instead, put it into practice. If you listen to the word, but do not put it into practice, you are like people who look in a mirror and see themselves as they are. They, they take a good look at themselves and then they go away and at once forget what they look like. But if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free, and keep on paying attention to it, and do not simply listen and then forget, but put it into practice, you will be blessed by God in whatever you do. So that's what you want to do. When God points out a sin to you, when you look in the mirror and you see what's wrong, what is that mirror? Uh, he uses this metaphor of a mirror just to help us to understand it, but that the mirror is the word of God. The, the word of God will correct, it will instruct, it will uh, reprove you. That's what we read earlier. And you want the, the word of God to become a mirror in your life and transform you. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. Let the word of God do what it needs to do in you. All these words that we've talked about, the gnawing, the, the swarming, and the creeping, it made me think of the nature of sin and how it gnaws at you. It, it bites at you. It, it nibbles here and there. It's, it's persistent until you give in to it. It wears you down. It, it causes distress and anxiety. Sin can move in and it starts out small and it becomes large. It's a slow movement. Sin wants to avoid being heard. Or notice, think about the locusts and the, the swarm. Sin wants to do that until it has you in its trap. What you thought you did in the dark is out in the open. Sin causes darkness. It turns light away. Sin can crouch at the door. You don't want to be like Cain. Satan always starts with a foothold or a place or position. Ephesians 4, 27 tells us that. And it will move if you allow it into a stronghold. Hallelujah. Don't allow sin to begin as a foothold and move into a stronghold. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, we have to realize that there is a spiritual battle that we're in, and though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, and until you realize that 
the fight that you're in is not of the flesh, but it is spiritual, uh, you, you, you won't be able to uh, defeat uh, sin. So 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a key uh, verse uh, in the mindset and in the battle that we have to deal with because most of our battle today is in the mind. And you have to realize that the battle is a spiritual battle. And when a thought of sin comes to your mind, it's up to you to take that thought captive. Uh, and you bring it to the will of God the Father. And that's what Jesus Christ did. And that's what he represented when he was here uh, on, on the earth. All right. So let's, let's go back to uh, Joel chapter 1. And we're going to deal with um, the passage uh, in verses uh, 7 and 8. Joel chapter 1. <laughs> Again, I lost it. <laughs> Joel chapter uh, 1 verses 7 and 8. It says, um, it has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Verse 8 says, well, like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Uh, what's going on now? He uses another metaphor with um, speaking about a virgin being girded with sackcloth um, for the bridegroom. And you know, when you're waiting for the groom to come, you're dressed in white. You are not bereaved. You are not wearing sackcloth. <laughs> so as we look at the word sackcloth, uh, this term refers to the ancient Hebrew custom indicating humility before God and, and wearing a coarse, rough cloth normally used to make sacks and dusting oneself with ashes uh, was worn in a time of mourning. Uh, it is the total opposite of what the priest would normally wear or what a bride would normally wear. Uh, it symbolized poverty of life and spirit uh, because they had nothing to offer uh, for their uh, worship. So as a result of the um, invasion, we've learned the effect of it on the land. So uh, the vine was wasted, the fig tree splinters, uh, they were stripped uh, to they were white. The locusts ate the fruit, the bark, uh, leaving the trees uh, totally naked. What else happens as a result? Uh, worship is affected. Note, grain offerings, drink offerings are cut off. Uh, the priests mourn, the ministers mourn, the field is ruined, the grain is ruined, there is no new wine. So what are they to do about this uh, since it's, since it, since it's uh, affecting their worship? Well, before we go there, you have to understand what a grain offering is, and it is a free will offering. And if you go into the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, you can read it in detail 
Uh, the Israelites offered it to God, and it consisted of wheat, barley. Uh, it was depending on what was available. Um, it, uh, the grain offering could be given to God, either uncooked or cooked. The requirements for the grain offering was that it had to be finely ground and uh, have oil and salt on it. It could not have any yeast. All right. Um, and this brought to mind First uh, Corinthians 5, 6, when I looked at that, when Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump, which brings us back to the subject of sin and how, and how it can prohibit our worship. Now, in returning to what grain offering means, when a, when a person would bring uh, the grain offering to the priest, a small portion of it was offered to God with some frankincense on the altar. The rest of the grain went to the priest. No specific amount of grain was uh, required for the offering. It was the most holy part of food offerings uh, that was presented uh, to the Lord. Um, and it was presented after the uh, burnt offering. And the burnt offering was uh, the animal sacrifice required for the atonement of sin. Now, blood had to be shed for the remission of sins to take place. So a grain offering would not serve the same purpose as a burnt offering. The purpose of the grain offering was to worship God and acknowledge his provision. In Joel, we see that this is taken away. They did not have any grain to offer him. Now, the drink offering uh, is compared to um, um, a pouring out of wine on the altar fire uh, for each lamb that was sacrificed. And you can read about that in Numbers uh, 15. Uh, it has been speculated that the offering of an animal, grain, oil, or wine, uh, the smoke that came from that was a, a soothing aroma to the Lord. So it was a metaphor for providing food for God. The pouring out of a drink offering uh, is a metaphor uh, for the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled at the cross. It also can be used uh, as, as a metaphor um, in Philippians 2.17 Paul used it to describe himself uh, uh, in his words to Timothy. He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Now, think, what is your free offering to God today? How are you making yourself a drink offering? The aroma that comes from what you offer to God, how is that received? <laughs> I hate to say this, but how do you smell? What type of aroma are you sending uh, to God when he, he looks at uh, your life? Now, the other thing was the, the fresh oil fell. What does this mean? Well, fresh oil was from olive trees. And this took me back to uh, the curses that we read in Deuteronomy. Uh, if you look at verse 40, that fresh oil uh, could also represent the Holy Spirit uh, and how he wants uh, us to receive. Uh, what does he want us to receive in this in this study? And the question that I'll ask you in regards to the fresh oil and what it represented is how has your oil been? What is your oil? What is uh, the anointing that is over your life? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you up every day through reading his word, through fasting, through prayer? Well, Psalms 92 and 10 
tells us, uh, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. The fresh oil that sin has taken away will be replaced with fresh oil to propel you to and through your tomorrows. Remember, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the word anoint means to pour over and to smear into the fresh oil that you will receive, that you will be blessed with as you continue this study in the book of Joel will be accomplished in your life. And it's a challenge that we um, will challenge you with as you receive the word of God, uh, as you listen to each speaker uh, on the um, audio. Now, there's other passages that talks about oil. Uh, we have 1 Samuel 2, 1, when Hannah prayed, uh, her heart rejoiced. And she said, the, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Why fresh oil? Why the word fresh oil? Your tomorrows require it. It establishes you. It seals you. It guarantees your hope in him. Second Corinthians uh, 1 verses 21 and 22 says, Now he who establishes you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How fresh is your oil? Now, the second instruction uh that Joel writes is uh, from verse 11. And it says, Be ashamed, O farmers, well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of, of the field is destroyed. So several things have happened. Um, the new wine is dried up. The vine is dry, dried up. No more pomegranate, palm, the apple tree all trees of the field, and then we've learned that the fresh oil has failed, the fig tree has failed. And then in uh, one twelve, um, as a result of what happened in 12, the storehouses are desolate, barns are torn down, grain is dried up, beasts groan, herds of cattle wander aimlessly, there is no pasture for the cattle and the sheep. There, there is nothing on the land. The fire has totally devoured the, the pastures uh, in the wilderness. It makes you glad of uh, passages like Psalms 36, verses 5 through 7, where the Lord tells us to be steadfast in love. Uh, God's steadfast love extends to the heavens his faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains, O God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How can we take refuge? Well, we can repent. And that's what Joel calls for them to do. He calls for them in verse 13 to gird yourselves up with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the, offer, of the altar. 
Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, for the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So the next thing that he is telling us to do, he's he's calling for a time of repentance, a time of repentance. He's calling for a, a fast and an, a solemn, solemn assembly. There are many ways that uh, you can fast. You can fast corporately as a church. You can fast individually uh, several days, a day to several days. Uh, you can fast a partial fast, which is 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. or sundown to sun, sun up. But make sure it's a fast that God has called. Uh, why do we fast? Um, fasting um, helps us to get closer to God. It helps us to uh, deny the flesh so that we can receive um, from him um, a growth process happens um, in our in our fasting. If we're seeking answers uh, from him, uh, we can fast. But always make sure that the fasting that you do um, is, is something that God has called you to. And I'll draw you your mind to Isaiah 58. It reads, uh, you fast for contention and strife to strike the wicked. You do not fast like you do today to make your, your voice heard. Is it a fast like this, which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? So there you go right there. Uh, fasting brings humility. And as a result of fasting, Isaiah 58 and 6 says, the fast that I'm calling you to do is loosen the bonds of wickedness, undo the bands of yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. That's anything that you're dealing with in life that you can't manage. You're having problems with addictions. You're having problems with. You want to control your flesh more so that you can read the word of God. Uh, fasting is something privately done. You don't announce it to everybody that you're fasting, according to New Testament references uh, in Matthew 6. As a result of fasting, Isaiah tells us light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily break, spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He has your back. <laughs> then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. So what does fasting do? It takes you in the presence of God. Isaiah says, you will call and God will say, here I am. It's going to remove yoke from your midst, uh, the pointing of fingers at someone else. And you're just going to look at your, your life. The Lord will guide you and he will satisfy your desires in scorched places. Verse 11 of Isaiah 58. You'll be refreshed. You'll be replenished. You will grow and you will expand. Isaiah 58 and 11 says, uh, it'll give your strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
and those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. If there's something that you need to tear down, he'll build you back up. He'll repair. He'll restore you uh, when you fast. So that's just that's just a quick word on fasting. Um, I suggest a, a book by um, Elmer Towns called Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. Uh, Jensen Franklin also has a wonderful book. You can go on Amazon and um, find his book on fasting. Now, what what does a solemn assembly mean? It's a gathering of people for a sacred feast, festival, holy occasion. Sometimes it's uh, a day of restraint, uh, a day of repentance uh, for the community of people. And that's what Joel is calling for. Uh, in this time of crisis for the people of Israel. He's calling for a day of fasting, a day of soul searching, a day of self-examination, a day where the congregation can come together and repent, confess their sin, uh, turn away. Joel 1.17. Let's go back to Joel 1.17. Joel one seventeen. No, 19. It says, To thee, O Lord, I cry. So what we see here um, in Joel is he's, he's crying out, and it's just a one-line prayer. The, the effects of the famine uh, in the land had affected not only the crops and the wine, but as you look at 17 and 18, the beasts, the animals, the cattle, the sheep, they were all suffering. Because if you think about it, there's no food for them to eat. And so Joel says, says this one line prayer here, to thee, O Lord, I cry. I pray that this this word will fall on uh, good ground. You know, we, we're familiar with the sower and the seed and how the some seeds fell on the road and the devil snatched uh, the word immediately from the heart of um, the one receiving. Uh, some seeds fell on rocky ground. This is a, a parable of the uh, sower and the seed in Matthew 13. And although the word was received with joy, there was no root when affliction and persecution came upon uh, that person that received the word. Then some seed fell among thorns uh, where the worries of the world, the deceit of the world, the riches of the world choked, choked the plant. I pray, I pray to thee, O Lord, I cry. My prayer to you is that this seed will fall on good ground and that it would bear fruit. And the word of God says uh, it may bear 30, it may be may bear uh, 60, may bear 100 fold. But my question to you is what type of ground will you allow the word of God to fall on you today as you continue your, your journey uh, in the book of Joel, in the book of Joel? So our prayers to thee, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for thee. 
for the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. May your soul pant for him as you continue this study in Joel. Joel's voice joins in harmony with those of the pasture, with those of the land, with those of the forest and the wild animals in expressing grief at the terrible state of land. His grief goes beyond what he sees in the world of nature, for his eyes have seen more, namely, that beyond the burned pasture and parched water brook lies a darker and more awesome threat. It is a sign of his walk with God that he can perceive the divine word in the events around him. It is a sign of his profound hope that when faced with disaster, he cries out to God. May we do the same. As Joel cried out to God, Lord, Yahweh, covenant God, to thee we cry out. This is the only hope left. This is the only hope for our world uh, today. From the Lord was the affliction, but from the Lord we can also receive healing. I'm going to close with uh, this, this passage from uh, Psalms 30, verses 11 through 13. It says, you turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I'll praise you forever. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their trouble. If you are brokenhearted, if you need deliverance, if your spirit is crushed, all you got to do is pray to him. Hallelujah. And he said, he will answer. Be blessed.